0: So anyway, I was going to say about Erin. Erin is the sweetest, kindest woman you'll ever meet. Person that is, but she happens to be a woman. She is gentle and kind. She's been through a lot of the stuff she's going to talk about tonight. She, are you going to talk about what you've been through briefly? She's lost her mom when she was 15, and um, she had some other really hard things in her past that might come up tonight. And both of us have lost a few pregnancies and. Um, that she's dealt with a lot of pain, and she's let God heal her. And instead of getting bitter and angry about that stuff, she's really let it change her into a really soft, gentle, and joyful person. And so I would encourage you guys, if you're looking, and I know you are, because that's what happens at (laughs) retreats. If you're looking, like I was, um, look for a woman like Erin, and you'll be happy. And for you women, this is a good example to look up to as somebody that you'd like to become. Because there's a whole lot about Aaron that uh, that I've never seen anywhere else. So listen carefully. It'll be good tonight. And if you hear kids screaming, just kind of walk out. (laughs) That'll be my job tonight. I'm gonna be. If I'm running around, it's not because I'm not paying attention. It's because I'm trying to like get our kids to not freak out. We're both freaking out right now. But, um, we're trying to, uh, suppress that with situations. So with that, are you ready? Yep. Yeah. Alright.
1: Mm-hmm. Awwww. Awwww. was, <laughs> like, Okay, four foot ten, so microphones don't work pretty well. Uh-huh. <laughs> If he is not with 10, <laughs> yeah, we, if we have, 10, we 10, have, we have 10, the opposite 10. problem. See like, Okay, so I'll just tell you one yeah. thing. This is a pretty intense clip. So suffering. Here's some um, different things that cause suffering: torture, death, kidnapping, murder, rape, disease, starvation, disasters. Yeah, the 2004 Indonesian tsunami and in earthquake. Estimated deaths are 230,273 lives. Nate and I actually took a, and Russ, uh, took a team to uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina and actually got to see firsthand some of the devastation. Uh, estimated deaths are 1,836 people. Earthquake in Haiti, estimated deaths uh Anywhere between 46,000 to 220,000. They don't really know. Earthquake and tsunami in Japan. Estimated deaths. The, uh, the latest number I could find was 27,559. Uh, nuclear war. Estimated death in Japan is... Anywhere between 150,000 to 246,000. Just the Cold War—it started just fear, terrorism. You know, just the idea of a dirty bomb coming in. Uh, Iran right now is building a nuclear weapon, and then just fear of radiation, and all the destruction. War: estimated death from what major wars in the past hundred years is. plus. Uh, Hopelessness, loss, confusion, shame, helplessness, grief, rage, abandon, unsatisfied, loneliness, fear, depression, addicted, rejection. The 9-11 estimated deaths, 3,000. The Holocaust estimated deaths, 6 million Jews, Cambodian genocide, estimated deaths 3 million, 25% of the population in four years. Um, a lot of times people question, why are you God? Um, Does God care? Does God exist? Ongoing East African famine is happening right now. Uh, Predicted deaths okay. 750,000. Street children, 100 million to hundred and fifty million worldwide this is actually a picture of the little girl on the streets in Cambodia in Phnom Penh uh, I am really I that little boy she's carrying is probably not her brother I would imagine that she is her son and she's probably like around 12 years old 13 years old herself orphans uh, 126 million worldwide and that's double when they've lost two parents. Death, 153,000 a day worldwide, and 56 million a year worldwide. Modern day slavery, estimated victims, 12.3 million. I see numbers as high as 0.7 million. Uh, 56% of all slaves are women and children. 40 to 50% of all people in all forms of forced labor are children. people are trafficked in 127 countries to be exploited in 137. Sex slavery, 1.4 million sex slaves worldwide, 300,000 sex slaves in the U.S. 14,500 to 50,000 victims trafficked into the U.S. this year. Every two minutes, a child is being prepared for sexual exploitation. And over the past 30 years, 30 million children were sexually sexually exploited. And this is an actual photo of a sex tra- trafficking victim. She's about right now four to five years old. Uh, we met her in Cambodia. She was sold, and, and then her parents got caught, and um, she was sold by her parents, and they got caught, and so they fled to Vietnam and abandoned her, and now she's a street child in Saigon. So the question being is, how can a loving, all-powerful God create a world with so much suffering? A lot of times we ask this question. A lot of people ask this question, and we ask where, what is the point of all the suffering, and where is God in all of this? And the point is, is, that everyone suffers. Obviously, I've never experienced suffering like those people. I have experienced a lot. I've watched my mother die, uh, miscarriages, just in the day-to-day life, you know, uh, the anxieties that, and the busyness and the stress of life. And so we all go through this. Not one person is untouched by some form of suffering. You know, be it a little bit of suffering or a lot of suffering, uh, we all go through it. So the question is, um, that I want to talk about, is why God and suffering can coexist, and why a good God and suffering can coexist. What bad view of suffering is, and why there is suffering, so the purpose of suffering, and what our response to suffering should be, and our hope In this life and in the next. So, I am not a philosopher, but I'm going to attempt to philosophically go through uh, reasons why God and suffering can coexist. And I'm not going to go in-depth with this philosophical argument, so I'm just going to touch it broadly. And so, you can ask the people that are more philosophical than me to go in-depth if you really want to understand this better. Uh, Nate is pretty good with philosophy, and you know, that's some of the other guys in here are, too. Um, basically, when people say that God and suffering cannot both coexist, it's a wrong understanding of who God is, and people believe that if God is all-loving and all-powerful, then it is logically impossible or improbable that he cannot coexist with suffering. Therefore, because suffering exists, God cannot exist. So they're making some hidden assumptions when they make that claim. Um, and they are that if God is all-powerful, he can create any world he wants. And if God is all-loving, he prefers a world without suffering. So the question being, are these assumptions necessarily true? And if it is possible that people have free choice, then it is logically impossible to to make someone do something freely. Does that make sense? So if it is possible that free choice, that God created the world with free choice... Where people had the opportunity to choose good or bad, um, then it is logically impossible to make a, make someone do something freely. Does that make sense? You can't force someone to do something they don't want to do. Then it's not free choice. So, um, so the point being is, even though God is all powerful, He's not going to do something that's illogical. Does that make sense? So. One thing, too, is God could have logical reasons for allowing suffering in this world. And because as humans, we are limited in our knowledge. Life is in, uh, so life is incredibly complex. We don't know everything. We can't see you know, everything that happened throughout history and everything that's going to happen in the future. So life is incredibly complex. Um, and seemingly small inv- events have a, huge Im- have a huge impact on history. I was reading a book, and actually I see it right there, I don't, I don't know who it is. It was um, William, by, On Guard by William Lane Craig, and he was addressing this issue about why God can coexist with suffering. And in it he says, Every event that occurs sends a ripple effect through history, such that God's reasons for preventing it might not emerge until centuries later, and perhaps in another country. Only an all-knowing God could grasp the complexities of directing a world of free people toward his envisioned goals. And he also said, This is not an appeal to mystery, but rather to point to our inherent limitations, which make it impossible for us to say, when confronted with some example of suffering, that God probably has no good reason for permitting it to occur. The thing is, is that if you look only at suffering as evidence for or against God, then, yeah, in your mind it could look highly improbable that God does not exist but if you take the whole scope of god's like evidence for god uh, then it makes it more probable that god exists Um, so what people fail to look at is the full scope of the evidence for god's existence and a lot of times they have a very lacking and small view of who god is Uh, for example some of the evidence that you can call into question or that you can point out for reasons why you can believe God exists is, for one, how did the universe get here? And a lot of people will say, oh, evolution is one way, but evolution just explains how this stuff that's already here evolved. Does that make sense? What it doesn't explain is how it got here in the first place. And even scientists today like, I don't, I don't know. Um, Einstein, was an atheist until he discovered the expansion of the universe, which actually it talks about in the Bible. It talks about the expansion of the universe. And when he discovered the expansion of the universe, he realized that the universe had a beginning. And when he realized that, he was so upset at the implications of there being a God uh, that he made up a theory to try to argue out of what he found, which later on he said was the worst mistake of his life to come up with this, this theory that was not true. Um, that he knew was false. <laughs> um, so one thing about the creation of the universe is it it broke all known laws of the universe. Now, so does that make sense? So the first law, thermodynamics, says nothing matter cannot be both cre- cannot be created nor destroyed, mm-hmm. but somehow it's here. Uh, another one is that the universe is fine-tuned to life, and I won't go into all the anthropic reasons for why the universe is so fine-tuned for life. You can ask the fellow scientists in there, and there's quite a few of them. So, it's amazing that there's order instead of complete entropy right now. Another reason that you can trust that God exists is that there are, is an internal moral law. You just somehow know right from wrong. And I'm not going to go into a whole big philosophical argument about why... Um, it's not about how we develop moral law, but, um, and why it's impossible to have moral law without God, because I don't have time for that. But anyway, so people know from right from wrong, and so that's really good evidence that God exists in, in this book again. says William Lane Craig says, although at a superficial level, suffering calls into question God's existence, at a deeper level, suffering actually proves God exists, God's existence. For apart from God, suffering is not really bad. If the atheist believes that suffering is bad or ought not to be, then he's making moral judgments that are possible only if God exists. And when you look at the Christian doctrine of suffering, it makes it even more probable that God exists, because our the, the, the doctrine that we hold to be true really explains why suffering is here, and... Uh, What God's view of suffering is, and His purpose, and uh, our hope that we can have in the midst of all this stuff. So, what is... uh, People often assume that if God exists, then his chief purpose for us as human beings is to make us happy. And that's the wrong view of God. If you look at what the Bible says... Um, You can see some themes in that the purpose of life is not happiness, but the purpose of life is knowing God. And humans are in a state of rebellion against God and his purpose for us. The purpose in life isn't just about living on this earth, but living in eternity. And that suffering now doesn't compare to what is to come. William Lane Craig again said, The person who knows God, no matter what he suffers, no matter how awful his pain he." can still say, God is good to me, simply by virtue of the fact that he knows God. So, knowing God itself is good enough, you know, in the midst of all this suffering. And then Christianity gives you resources to deal with suffering. And we're going to discuss these issues at greater length right now. So, why is there suffering? Man is sinful and selfish. Proverbs nineteen three. It says a man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages against the Lord. And then again, in Hebrews 3:13, it says, "But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness." And I wanted to focus on the last part of that verse, where it says, "Be hardened by sin's deceitfulness." All of us have a very casual, selfish attitude about our sin. Uh, we always say, "Well, I'm not that bad of a person." My, you know, really bad people are the rapists and the murderers, and, uh, you know, I'm a good person, you know. Uh, God says, and Isaiah says, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. So every good that we can do in God's eyes looks like filthy rags. And the actual definition of filthy rags in Isaiah is used menstrual cloth. <laughs> 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 So just because of our state, so because of our state of rebellion and just the way God sees us and our sin, it that's that's what He sees. It. Anything good that we think is good, is that's how God sees it. Yeah, you like that. <laughs> so. One of the, one, my, I have an interesting, one thing really interesting happened to me over this summer. I went to Cambodia to work with girls, uh, a ministry that rescued girls from sex trafficking, little girls. I'm talking about ages 6 to 14. And while we were in our hotel, we ran up against a pedophile with the girl actually in his room. And we confronted him, and I went and got help, the hotel staff's help while they were confronting him. It was really cool. They took his picture and said, I hope you don't mind your picture being all over the Internet. So it's pretty interesting. But he said something really interesting. He said, what, what's the problem? I'm not doing anything wrong. And I was like, really? You think? But what's interesting is the idea that he was completely – he wasn't – Being dishonest, he was, in his mind, justifying his actions. I'm not doing anything wrong. It goes back to sin deceives us. It hardens us. We can't really tell how bad we really are because of the sin deceiving us and hardening us. And uh, there's another interesting thing is people that become monsters, they don't look like monsters. This man looked like a gentle old man who was probably 50 or 60. He... He was a businessman who was from Sweden. He didn't look like a monster. He was well dressed. Um, actually, he just of woken up, so he's kind of still in his uh, night clothes. But he—he he was there on business, and and so you—you you wouldn't have been able to tell him from anybody else. And while we were there, also we got to meet a girl. They skyped her in while we were having a party for the girls that were being rehabilitated. And she was one of five or seven girls that had been brutally tortured and raped. Um, I think their ages were from nine to twelve. They were in ages by one man who was a retired U.S. uh, Marine. He was a captain. And he was teaching as a civilian teacher in, in Cambodia. So you think... This man is probably an outstanding citizen here in the U.S. He was a captain in the Marines. You know, you wouldn't think that a captain in the Marines would stoop to such level, but he was brutally torturing these girls, and in fact, the, I believe the um, immigration people that were part of the investigation said it was the worst case of abuse they'd ever witnessed, and of torture and abuse of uh, young girls. And now he's serving a sentence of 210 years, I think. So, that's good. The people who become monsters don't start up as monsters, you know? Um, so, in this country, it's really hard to see how awful sin can be because we live in a country that is based on Judeo Christian principles. Uh, we have justice, uh, we have officials who serve us and don't try to rob us, or uh, we have judges that are just. We, you know, it's a good, a good place to be. But in countries where that doesn't happen, you see people who become fully depraved. What I mean by that is, like, they are not afraid of justice, and so they do evil, evil, horrible things. And civilization is a very thin veneer. You know, there's not much that keeps people from being that way, going, you know, fully into evilness. (laughs) What's interesting is that most people blame God for suffering, they see. Um... They asked, if God exists, why does he allow people to suffer? They yes, asked, where is God? Why is God not, you know, getting rid of this problem? And there was a really interesting, I don't know how many people have heard of G.K. Chesterton, who lived a while ago, but uh, he was from England, I believe, and they, somehow they had this contest, this essay writing contest, and the person with the best essay obviously won, And this man won by writing two words on his essay. And the question was, what is the biggest problem in the world? And his response was, on his essay, I am. And that's the point. And going back to Proverbs 3.19, it says, A man's own folly ruins his life, but his heart rages against the Lord. So we are the problem. I am the problem. Um, We have these weeds in our garden. We actually keep them for Joseph. I don't know where Joseph is right now. Joseph, are you in here? <laughs> Talking about the weed in my garden that we feed you. The weed in my garden that we feed you. Grow weed. <laughs> <me. laughs> <Girl laughs> <me. laughs> there's this weed. We I've nicknamed it Joseph's weed. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, maybe Joseph knows the proper name for this. It's not marijuana. I promise. It it starts out really, really small, like a really, really small plant. But, you know, if I'm not noticing it, eventually it's taken over my entire garden. I'm thinking, where did that come from? I was just looking at it two or three days ago, and it was not that big. But the interesting thing is, is that this weed starts out really small, and then it takes over the garden. And that's the way our sin is. Our sin starts out really small, and then it takes over our life. And... (laughs) You know, the small weed and the big weed are the same weed. Does that make sense? And so small sin, so maybe my sin isn't as bad as uh, this Marine captain's sin, but it's still sin. It's still that same weed that can get out of control, can really hurt, can destroy my life, can prevent growth. So um, there's this really... Nate and I were reading in the news recently and we came across this article about this this man who he had been caught and he had murdered and raped this woman and it came to find out that he probably has murdered and raped more. And he, he turned himself in on a plea deal because he was going to get the death sentence and now it's just life. So he turned himself in and... You look at his picture, and he just looks like someone that you could trust. He just looks clean-cut, clean-shaven, very, very respectable, very handsome man, and you know, someone that is easy to trust, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't fear this guy at all. But he said a very interesting quote, and he said, "Remember me for who I was, not the monster I have become." <laughs> Isn't that interesting? This man didn't set out in life born a monster, you know, but he became one. Thing. So, one thing to think about is every action, even no matter how small, has ripple effects in history. Mm. One, really, I'm always really interested in thinking about sin and how sin, even a smallest little sin, can just cause devastating effects. And one thing that always interests me is traffic, uh, how traffic is related back to sin. One time Nate and I were on Interstate Five, which is absolutely probably the worst interstate in the United States. I don't know how many times I've seen so many accidents on this one stretch of highway. It's in California. It goes runs from north to south all the way through California. And Nate and I were driving down this freeway and usually you have to do about eighty five. Eighty five is the slowest you can go. Otherwise you're gonna get killed and run over and you know. So we're going eighty five down this highway And there was road construction up ahead, and we didn't see the signs because traffic had already backed up probably way past the signs. And the the thing is, is that what always amuses me about road construction is that everybody zooms up to the beginning of the line and cuts, and so it keeps traffic backed up farther and farther and farther because nobody can go through because everybody says, oh, it's just me. I'm just the only person that's cutting in line. Instead of waiting, they cut and slows everybody down. And so something seemingly insignificant is, it's not that big a deal. It's just cutting in line. It almost killed us. Uh, we, all of a sudden, the traffic stopped instantly. And so we had to go from 85 to zero. And the entire time we had, we were doing 85, slamming on our brakes. And we were probably, no, God, I did not. It was only God that saved us from this, but... We were riding this guy's bumper for literally probably about 20, 25 seconds, about this far away from hitting him. And there was a guy behind us, big old truck, pulling a trailer, a big boat behind him, right behind him, like this far from our bumper. You know, so it's interesting to think that like, you think that your sin is only going to affect you. It's not that big a deal. I'm just cutting, but... Little do you know the ripple it's effects is having way back in the line, like almost killing someone or maybe killing someone, you know. On June, June, so, so yeah, just thinking about what we normally would not think twice about, cause have caused major pain and suffering to someone else. On the 28th of June, 1914, Archduke France, Ferdinand of Austria, heir apparent to the Austria. Hungarian throne and his wife Sophie Duchess of Honenberg, were shot dead in Sarajevo by Gavriel Lop (laughs) so this story always really interests me because one single action by this man this (laughs) Gavriel this little action you would think I mean it's not a really little action he killed someone but this one single act of assassination still to this day so much pain so much war so much destruction it's unbelievable if you don't know this this is the act that started World War One. and if World War One hadn't started World War II wouldn't have started because um, because of various things World War II started because of World War I great, the British took over the Middle East and the way they divided up the Middle East was really pathetic um <laughs> So World War Two started. The Jews go back to Palestine and you know, Israel as a result of that. But then you think of probably the majority of the wars since then have been because of this. And think of when I was counting that estimate of war in the past hundred years, I was counting World War One, World War Two, Vietnam War, Korean War, you know, up to today. And So, this man is probably a direct... His actions have impact... Are the direct result of... 105 million people dying. Just by seemingly pulling the trigger and killing someone. So, that's pretty big. But the thing is, is that he felt justified in his actions. Because this Archduke was oppressing his people. They wanted freedom. And... So, that man... Was sinning against Gabriel, and this man that was sinning against him. Probably thought, "Hey, I'm justified in doing this," and it's, it you keep thinking, "Well, I'm justified in sinning; it's not that big a deal. I'm justified in sinning," you know, and it goes on and on and on back to Adam and Eve, the first sin, right? So we think that our little sin is not a big deal, but you once again, you don't not understand the ripple effects it could have. Not only to your detriment, but to the detriment of people around you for generations and generations to come. In Genesis 3, 6-19, it talks about the first sin in the world. In Romans 5:12, it says, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. So because of one man's actions, we're all in this boat. Um, in Romans 3:23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So every single one of us has sinned, And what sin means is that you miss the mark. You get disqualified from being in relationship with God. And in Romans uh, 3.10 it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. So there's no one person in this world that is sinless, that can say that they're good enough, that can say that they're good outweighs the bad. No one. In Romans 7.14, it says, I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin, so that one little we has taken over all of our lives. We are slaves to it. In Psalms 10.2-11, it says, In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak. Who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of all of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, Nothing will shake me. I will always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victim. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, "God has forgotten." He covers his face and never sees. So, the point of that passage is, wicked men are the reason why they're suffering in this world. You know, God doesn't doesn't cause suffering, and evil men choose to cause suffering. And if you think about it, the majority of suffering is caused by people acting selfishly towards others. And in Romans 6.23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. So what that means is that because of our sin, we have earned death. And if you look around it, not only physical death, but look at all the destruction on this planet. This is what we've earned, this is what we, we decided to work for. In Galatians 6, 7, through 8, and 8, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. So it's not that God is saying, I want you to suffer. It's because we have chosen to sin. And so because of that, there's always there's always a consequence for our actions. I mean, that's just, that's almost a law of nature. Um, it is, actually is a law of nature, isn't it? For every reaction there is an equal and opposite reaction, right? So even in nature. So there's always a consequence to every single action, whether good or bad. There's always a consequence. No matter how small we think their action is, there's always a consequence for our actions. And sin produces so much destruction in this world. Look at I mean, look at, look at those images. I mean, so much destruction. Another interesting thing it talks about in the Bible, in Romans 8:20 20 and 21, it says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So our sin brought creation under a curse as well. That is why you have hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, tsunamis, etc. Um, the world doesn't work the way it should because of our sin. Uh, we even contribute to making the world worse, you know, through environmental issues, uh, not not caring for the world like we were originally supposed to. A lot of times people will say that a disaster that comes on people is because God is judging. Um, like I don't know how many times I've heard to say, well, God is judging people in New Orleans because look at Katrina, they just you know, wiped out the city, or uh, Haiti, you know, because it's gone, you know, that was God's judgment on them, but it's really interesting, in Luke 13, through 5 it's a story about Jesus, and it says, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. So God is saying that disasters don't happen to people because those people were more of a sinner than the ones that live. Just, they happen because of the curse of this world of them. They happen because of the sin of us another thing is in John 10.10 it says a thief comes to kill to kill to steal and destroy and that thief is Satan Um, and Satan his plan for suffering is to kill us destroy us um, and ruin our lives as best he can and ultimately physically die and suffer for all eternity that's his plan for us that's his point in suffering that's why he continues to tempt people to sin is because he wants to kill us and destroy us so why, what is God's view of suffering? And why does he allow pain and suffering? There's probably one of the most interesting stories that I've heard in a while or passages in the scripture. It's John 5, 4, 5, 1-14. And I will just paraphrase it. There's a story of this man who Jesus came across who had been lame for 38 years. And Jesus healed him, and then later on ran into this guy again, and he says, "See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you." I, I just pause, just pause for a moment, and think about what he's saying there. See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. And thinking about back then in that society, being crippled for 38 years. That's not like here. I mean, here it's it's unfortunate that people are have to live crippled, but here it's more. We we work with you. We don't they don't treat people like they're an outcast or ostracized. But there, being crippled was almost a death sentence. Uh, You were you had to beg for your food. You probably were homeless. Uh, You. You probably had running sores all over you. You probably uh, wore rags for clothes. You were probably mistreated. Um, Pretty, pretty bad stuff probably happened to you. So you couldn't think of anything worse than being crippled in that society. But Jesus' view was stop sinning or something worse than being crippled for 38 years may happen to you. So God's view is that our sin is so much worse than suffering. Uh, in 1 Peter 2.11 it says dear friends I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul so sin wars against our who we are and our relationship with him so God cares more about the root of the problem than the problem itself does that make sense it's not that he doesn't care about the problem but he is more Concerned with the root of the problem, that root of sin, because of the destruction and devastation that it brings in our lives. Sin is about the problems that it brings, the suffering that it brings. So, thinking about a world, can you imagine? Just try to picture for a second a world that is free of suffering, but where people can continue to sin and be selfish. Is that even logically possible? It's not like I, I can't even picture it, it's just not possible. So God has to allow the consequences for our sin. He has to, because if we lived in a world free of suffering, but full of sin, we wouldn't think we needed God or anyone else. We would live as we pleased and do whatever we wanted to anyone we wanted. And this would be more detrimental to us than anything that we could suffer here on this planet. So because our sin causes suffering, it is logically impossible for a world like that to exist. It's logically impossible. For a world free of suffering but full of sin to exist. God hates sin and suffering. In Psalms 5, 4 through 6, it talks about you are not a God who takes pleasure and evil. And with you, the wicked man cannot dwell. And it says, the Lord abhors, and that's like he was stronger than hate. And he hates um, people that, that are evil and that do wicked things. So God hates this. He hates uh, sin. He hates suffering. He hates this. Um, but the amazing thing um, um, is C.S. Lewis this is a great quote he said suffering is like God's megaphone to a dying world in John 9 1-3 there's um, a story about Jesus he says as he went along he saw a man blind from birth his disciple asked him Rabbi who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So God allowed it, not because of his judgment, but because he wanted to use it to prove to the blind man and to others that he was who he said he was. He wanted to, he allowed this man to go through this suffering because he said, there's so much better and I want to prove it to you. I want you to see that. I am who I say I am, and so I'm going to allow you to suffer this way, so that way you'll come to me and you'll see me for who I am. And you look at nowadays, and it says most of the time, this is, uh, most of the time this is God's way of getting our attention. Think about 9/11. After 9/11, church attendance rose dramatically. People were searching for God. And when we suffer, people are reminded of how fragile life is. They are reminded that this. Of life's big questions, why am I here? What is my purpose? Does God exist? <laughs> suffering, I know in my life suffering is produced um, it helps me to see other people instead of my sin and myself instead of what I want. it wakes me up and it wakes us up to other people and we've become more passionate and more and less selfish in first Peter four one. Uh, through two, it's talking about. Uh, it says, "He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God." So, right there, God's view of it is that when we suffer, we become better people. We become less selfish, more humble, more compassionate, and we it removes sin from life our lives. It helps us. It helps us overcome this bondage to sin. If you look at places with the most oppression in the world, places like China or the Middle East or even North Korea, you don't know much about, we can't know much about North Korea. But in a lot of those places, uh, it's having the largest growth of Christians right now. And um, in places that don't have a lot of oppression or a lot of suffering, you see a decrease in Christians. And so that's interesting. I know uh, in China alone, I think it's, 30,000 plus people are becoming Christians a day. I know in the Middle East there's 16,000 Muslims converting to Christianity a day. Um, And in other places too, it's like thousands upon thousands of people are becoming Christians. But in the West, people are turning from God. Um, So God allows suffering for us as Christians because in James 1, 3-4 it says... You know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be complete, complete, not lacking anything. So God doesn't want us to lack anything. He wants us to reach this level of a relationship with him that is so intimate and so close that he will allow us to go through suffering, because he knows that as we suffer, we turn to him and we trust him more. It's going to develop us. It's going to mature us. And then in Hebrews twelve seven it says, Endure hardship as discipline. Hmm. So when we suffer, we are to endure it as discipline. Because later on in that, verse, that passage, it talks about how discipline, um, when we we're disciplined, we share in His holiness. And without, without holiness, then no one can see God. And so the point is, is that to make us more like Him, to make us less selfish, to make us more humble, to make us more loving. Because without those attributes, without being Christ-like, no one can see who God really is. No one can see God for being loving and kind and compassionate. Um, one thing that is so amazing about God, and I would not do this every day. I'm like, okay, this is enough of this junk in this world, okay, I'm so to of it. But... in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is so amazing that God puts up with what he hates. I mean, I look at the little girls in Cambodia that have been raped, and you can't save them because the people in the village are so greedy and so horrible. That you see these little girls that are running around the street and they're being raped and tortured and you can't do anything about it and God puts up with it and He hates it and He puts up with it because He wants people to come to Him. He's saying, "I'm putting off my putting just, like bringing justice to this world because I'm waiting for you to come to me. I'm waiting for people to come to me." And so it says He is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to Him. You know. So he puts up with what he hates. Could you put up with what you hate hated for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years? Probably not. I maybe could put up with what I hated for about ten seconds. <laughs> okay, that's enough. You know what I mean? I'm done, I'm gonna I'm gonna take I'm gonna have my revenge, you know what I mean? <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'm done with that. But anyway, so, so he's he's withholding that time so it, that as many people as possible can find him that are looking for him. So, what is God's response to suffering? God is just. Once again, in Psalms 5, 4-6, it says, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies, bloodthirsty, and deceitful men. The Lord abhors. In Psalms 10:13 through 18 it says why does the wicked man revile God why does he say to himself he won't call me to account but you O God do see trouble and grief you consider it to take it in hand the victim commits himself to you you are a helper of the fatherless The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage him and you listen to the cry. Defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. So God is just. People cry out, uh, God, where are you in the midst of all this suffering? And bring your justice to these monsters. They want justice for these horrible things that were being committed. And God answered... um, this question, by giving us laws to follow, which can be summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If people would follow these laws, we wouldn't see suffering the way we do. In Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 20, God, in talking about and summing up these laws, he says... Now he gives us a choice. He says, "Now what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you may that you have to ask, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No, nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask, who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Now the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction." For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses, now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. Um, he's saying, look, you can choose life or you can choose this awful life. You can choose death and destruction or you can choose life and peace and joy. Um, but we respond with, God, your laws are too strict uh, and oppressive. They, make, me, they like, make life too boring. I don't like them. I'm not going to follow them. In fact, I'm going to follow my own philosophy. I'm going to follow my own gods, So that way I can live life the way I want to. So God responded. Okay, well, I told you, you could choose. You know, you're going to hurt yourself. And so he responded, you know, the wages of sin is death. And because I made these laws... I am a judge. I am the judge, and you broke the laws. So now I have to judge you. And so we say, God, you are so violent. God, you are so unjust. Look what you did to Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, look, what, look at the violence in the Old Testament. You, people say, point to this, and then they point to, well, why is all this suffering? God, you don't care. God, you're not bringing your justice. Oh, look at, look at how violent you are in the Old Testament. Look at your, you know, what you did to these people. The thing is, is that once again, we are living in a land where we're benefiting from people that decided long, hundreds of years ago, that we're going to lay down the laws in this land based on Christian principles, based on Judea christian principles, right? And so we benefit from that. We really don't see how awful injustice is. and We really don't see this destruction that sin can cause. So if you look at what was happening in those societies, God is... God is... (laughs) Uh, You read the Old Testament. It says God warns these people over and over and over again. He says, look, you are selling your children in prostitution. Look, you are not providing justice for the orphans and the widows. Look, you're, you're, you're being unjust judges. Look, you're doing all these horrible, horrible things. You're burning your child... You're sacrificing your children alive, babies alive, and to the God of more life, You know, I mean, horrible, horrible things they were saying. And he was warning you, look, you've got to stop this. You've got to stop this, or I'm going to bring the Babylonians against you. Or with Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, God has an interesting conversation with Abraham. And Abraham saying, God, if, it, it boils down to God telling Abraham, if there are ten righteous people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy them. Okay? And then we all know what happened. Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed, right? Okay, so there weren't even ten people that were good, that lived there. And if you look at the story, people say, well, God destroyed them because they were all homosexuals. That is not the truth. you look at the the, uh, culture back then, they were into child sacrifice. Um, They were into all these horrible horrible things. They had two angels going into Sodom. And... All the town, it says, all the youth and all the old men of the town went to where these two angels were, into Lot's house, and demanded that Lot give them to give these two men to all the men of the town, so they could rape them. And you think about what is going on in the society where even youth, so I'm thinking like 13-year-old boys, are wanting to rape two strangers, right? So what is going on in this society? where children are being pulled into this. You know what I mean? Something horrible must have been happening in that society. Horrible. And it, for a modern-day example of why you know, we want God's justice is look at Cambodian genocide. I know most Americans are pretty um, unaware of what happened. It happened in 1975. It's the Cambodian genocide. It took 25% of the population. It took four years. And it was a brutal, brutal, brutal regime that came in, and it was Pol Pot with the dictator that came in, and he wanted—he was communist and he wanted to set up a uh, agrarian utopia, which means that everybody had to be peasants. Okay, and so he moved everybody from the cities into the farm country. He got rid of all education, all doctors, all lawyers, any culture, any other language, all money, all trade. And he took away the family, like he would take children from the family. And uh, we went to the Genocide Museum and at this particular uh, prison, it was awful. I mean, you walk in there and it just still feels horrible. Like you feel this so much oppression when you go through it. It's just a horrible, horrible place to go. And you can still see blood got splattered on the floor from it. Um, 20,000 people died in this prison, I think. Uh, when you went in you never came out basically is what happened but I mean if think about it he got rid of the population in tw- 25% of the population in 4 years this is a horrible regime um, so if you think if, if he, it hadn't been taken out just imagine probably we wouldn't have Cambodia today I mean this is such, it was such a horrible regime that still to this day 30 years later they cannot get over this issue they're still struggling with it Um, what finally happened was Vietnam came in and took out Pol Pot So I think, well Vietnam probably has committed a lot of atrocities too um, but it's like you can think modern day examples like God taking one evil government to take out a worse evil government and I am so thankful that Cambodia doesn't live under that regime anymore and you know what's really sad is Pol Pot he died under house arrest, never having gone to trial for all the crimes he'd committed. And we think about all of that. We're, there's no justice there. And so we, we get angry when we hear of things like that that are unjust. That there was no justice for Pol Pot. You know, he never went to trial for what he, what he did. So if you think about modern day examples, you're like, I'm really glad that there was justice against that regime. You know what I mean? But then we look at the Bible and we're thinking, oh, look at how violent you know it is but that's what's going on um, so we question God we demand answers we accuse him of not understanding that it that it's too hard to live on this planet that there is no justice look at all the hunger and poverty look at the orphans look at all the death look at all the torture look at all the suffering and abuse uh, we shake our fist at God and like how dare you um, <laughs> it's like we accuse him of being unjust when he brings his justice. And then we question, thinking, where are you? Why don't you bring your justice? You know. So God's response to our questioning in Philippians 2, 6-8. He sent Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being ma- made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He sent Jesus. Jesus experienced poverty. Jesus experienced condemnation from an unjust judge. Jesus uh, experienced people misunderstanding him. Jesus experienced people rejecting him. Jesus experienced people torturing him. Jesus experienced people falsely accusing him. Jesus experienced people hating him. Jesus experienced people abandoning him. Jesus experienced uh, having to obey God's laws. Jesus experienced being human. Jesus experienced death. So, Jesus experienced everything that we are saying. Look at how awful this is. He went through it, right? So while we point the finger at God, uh, John 1:12 says, "While we were still sinners, Christ died for us." So while we accuse Him of being violent and vengeful and spiteful and unjust, He doled out the conviction intended for us to Himself. He sacrificed Himself for us so that we can have this where it says the wages of sin is death. So now that we could earn a world that is not like this, you know? After I am the problem, I am the problem of this world. He died for me me so that I can live in a problem in a world without suffering. You know, so that I can have a relationship with God almighty. You know what I mean? One thing that is also really awesome, going back to John 10.10, it says that uh, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they may have life, and a meaningful life, a life that is full. So Jesus redeems our suffering. Okay, so Satan meant to kill us, to destroy us, to wreak havoc in our life with suffering, But Jesus says, I am going to redeem that suffering. I'm going to give what is seemingly pointless, I'm going to give it meaning. I'm going to give it, you know, I'm going to turn. In Romans 8, 28, it says, uh, let me just read it. Know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. So everything that we suffer on this planet, God will turn for our good, meaning that God will use it in our life to help learn to endure, to help us trust him more, to help develop our character so that we in turn can love others more. Um, think about, when I think about all that I've been through, um, and how God has used it in my life, I think about if my mom hadn't died, I probably wouldn't be standing here before you. I probably wouldn't have worked through the things that I've worked through. I probably wouldn't be married to me. I probably wouldn't be having my beautiful daughters. And I think about um, that and and all the other ways that God has worked in my life and grown me as an individual. And though I don't ever want to go through any of that again, I realize that God has produced good things good things out of horror, and I, my joy that I have in life is so much more deep and complete and beautiful, and my hope in the future is so much greater now because of what he's done in my life and the healing that he has brought in my life. Um, so instead of suffering to re- destroying us, he uses it in our lives. So, where Satan meant to destroy us with it, he's like, no, I'm going to take that purpose away from you. And I'm going to make it something better than that. So, once again, God is patient. But he will return. He will put an end to it. John 14, 1-3, Jesus makes us a promise that he will return again and come back for us. So, what is our response? What is our hope well one thing cool that I forgot to mention real quick. That God responds how he responds to us and I'm just gonna go through this real quick. Second Corinthians one one through five, he comforts us. Twelve nine, he gives us grace, so he helps us endure this. Psalms ten fourteen, he doesn't ignore our pain and the stuff we go through. In Psalms thirty four eighteen it says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. In Psalms fifty six, eight he says it keeps a record of our sorrow. He keeps a record of our suffering. He will not forget it. He writes it down. In Psalms one hundred thirty-nine, eleven through twelve, it says that darkness is his light to him. So our darkest moment, he is light in our darkest moment. Matthew eighteen ten, it's really really awesome. It says that um, You know, don't look down on these children. Don't look down on little ones, because the angels in heaven see the face of God every day. In John 14, 27, it says that he gives us a peace that is beyond anyone's comprehension. Um, In John 16, 33, it says that um, in this world we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus uh, says that come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light and you will find rest for your souls you know? so he wants to give us a rest for our souls he, wants to, he says that come to me who are thirsty he wants to satisfy so many of us are so unsatisfied and we have a longing in our heart that's never fulfilled and he is going to satisfy that so going back to what is our response In um, Hebrews twelve, seven through twelve. Endure hardship with discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while while they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may may not be disabled, but rather healed. And focusing on two things, it says, How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? So as we're suffering, our response should be submitting to him and living, like allowing him to heal us, allowing him to fill us with joy and peace and patience and perseverance and us and holiness and then going on to therefore strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled or rather healed and I was thinking about what that verse meant and it dawned on me in context of the verse is talking about suffering and hardship and if you read the first part of the verse it's talking about fixing your eyes on Jesus when you're thinking about all the hardships you're going through um, but, anyways, when you think about so many people, they fall away from God because of this issue of suffering, this issue of pain. But when they can see you um, saying, No, look at what God has done in my life. Look at the joy that He gives me. Look at the strength He gives me to endure this junk. That's what it's talking about, is therefore strengthen your people's hearts and needs. Me. Like, focus on Jesus. Um, Because when people see the joy that you have in Jesus, then it says the lame will walk and not be disabled. So those that are bowed under this heavy weight of suffering, they will realize that they have hope with Jesus. (laughs) Ooh, I think you're suffering right now. In James 1, it says, count it all joy when you're... When you go through various trials, right? Because mm-hmm. the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So, to count it all joy, like, yay, get to become more persevering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, finally, what is our hope? Well, our hope is that on this life, Jesus will give us a meaningful life, a life of purpose, a life of hope, a life of joy. Um, but, in Galatians 5.5, 5, it says, But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. And I'm just going to hold that thought right there and go to Revelation 21, 3-4. And it says, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of thanks has passed away. So, our hope, not only is that God provides his purpose and meaning and joy in this life, but also that this life is not all that there is. That he is going to bring us to a world that is free from environmental problems. Um, is free from suffering and pain and fear. I Could you imagine having knowing that you can let your child go out and play and not worry about them getting eaten by wild animals or worry about them getting kidnapped or worry about them getting raped or worry about them getting hit by a car. There will be a world where there's none of that worry, none of that day-to-day anxiety, and that our purpose is so cool. It talks over and over in the Bible that um, the gifts and abilities that God gives us here will just open up to even more in heaven and that what we have it, it's like our purpose even gets bigger in heaven and it, we get to keep learning in heaven i just get so excited about things that we get to keep learning we get to um there'll be technology in heaven there'll be just really cool things um <laughs> so that's pretty cool i don't know uh but no more shame no more guilt no more any of this junk um We'll all be righteous, meaning that we'll know, we'll be able to know that none of us are being disingenuous, uh, not being genuine. You know how sometimes it's hard to trust people if, you know, if they're being really genuine with you or not? Um, You know that they won't slander you anymore. So you can have this awesome open relationship with people. Uh, It says that the increase of his government will not end, so God, by nature is an artist, and an engineer, and so he likes to create things. And so it says his in case so his government will be no end. So that to me means he's going to keep on creating, and we get to keep exploring his creation, you know. Um, so... Yeah, I, I, there's just so much to hope for. We have so much to look forward to. And it's not going to be where so many people have this image of heaven that it's, oh, we're just going to sit on clouds and play harps and sing for all of <laughs> I'm sorry, that's a really boring image of heaven. But if you look at what the Bible talks about, there's some pretty cool things uh, that we can be looking forward to. And just let your imagination go wild, you know. Um, it's it's going to be pretty awesome. I, I would like to wonder... Really, you think? I mean, you look at this world. It's pretty creative. God created it. It's pretty creative, but it's fallen. And you think that God can't get more creative than this, and it's going to be boring in heaven? That's kind of funny. But yeah, so that's that is our hope. Our hope is in a world that is going to be free of all this suffering, and that we're going to have our true purpose is going to be is going to be revealed at that time. So, in conclusion, I was. God does not cause suffering. We have chosen it. And we think that our sin doesn't affect that many people, but it's like a bomb that goes off, that it doesn't just hurt you, but it hurts generations to come. (laughs) And it was really interesting to think our hope is not in a changed world. I mean, 126 million orphans, 100 million to 150 million street children. You know, you think about I mean the environmental disasters, and you think about all the causes that people are so passionate for, and that is the point. Jesus is going to, in the answer for all those causes, You know, he's going to put an end to it. Uh, one thing that's cool, uh, looking forward to heaven again, is that in heaven... People from every tribe, every language, every ethnic group, every nation that has ever existed will be there. So we think about, there's so many vanishing cultures, but even Jesus has the answer for that. <laughs> we talk about being a part of preserving your culture for all of eternity in the purest sense of the word, you know? Um, but he is our hope, he is the answer for all of it. I was reading in... This magazine is called Voice of the Martyrs, and in what it is, is a magazine that's talking about and bringing to light um, issues of people that are undergoing a lot of persecution for their faith, and mostly it's in the 1040 window, meaning a lot of the Middle East, a lot of Africa, a lot of uh, Asia, like China, and sometimes North Korea, when they can get word out what's going on there, and um, and Southeast Asia. Um, there are more martyrs and more people being persecuted for their belief in Jesus now than ever have been in all of history. But anyways, this, I was just reading recently, and this article uh, came in like two days ago, it's talking about Iran. And right now, there are over a million Christians in Iran, so that's pretty cool to think about a lot of Christians in Iran. But this was focusing on women Christians in Iran. And there was this one article, it was really, really cool. This woman converted from Islam to Christianity, she said, I hate religion, so I became a Christian. <laughs> but anyway, she was going on and she says that these new believers, new you know, new Christians were asking her, What can we do? They were really fearful about persecution and going to jail, and being tortured and she goes, you know, it happens. we you know, that's part of being a Christian is that sometimes you're gonna get persecuted it happens but the best thing to do when you're persecuted is to take a stand for Jesus and so she said that a day after she told them that they got arrested and she, this is a really fun quote she says <laughs> and after they were arrested and then they got out they had no more problems <laughs> was kind of funny fun. but she said that the point of persecution is not persecution but the point of it is eternity like, that's their perspective you know and they have gone through so much, you know, and we don't have to fear much at all, but they have a lot to fear, and they're like, yeah, it's not a big deal, you know. So the point is not suffering. The point is the hope we have in, in our eternal life, like, to have an eternal perspective. So I'm going to close with this video. And then, and then I have to... Uh,